right, thank you. I don't know about you, but my favorite, well, I shouldn't say my favorite part, that's not good. One of my favorite parts of Mary's testimony when I read it was getting used to long sermons. I, I love that. I love it. And uh, I aim not to disappoint this morning. So... It is a great way to start our worship time this morning when we get to witness the ordinance of baptism, when we get to celebrate a child of God, which anybody with faith in Christ is, walking in obedience to Him and following Him in the baptismal waters, professing faith and giving us that picture. We are returning to Jonah chapter 1 as we continue. I know we have guests here. We preach through the books of the Bible here. We happen to be in Jonah, and we're in Jonah chapter 1. One this morning. And so we're returning now to pick up the story where we see this wayward prophet who has broken fellowship with God by his disobedience. He's disobeyed the very clear commands of God, commands of God given to him by his word, which we all actually have. So we don't really turn to a book like Jonah to learn about this 8th century BC prophet. And we don't really turn there to learn what happens to the sailors on the boat. We don't really turn to Jonah to see what happens to the Ninevites. We go there like we go to all of Holy Scripture to learn about God. To learn about who He is and who we are and where we fit. Question three of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, What do the Scriptures principally teach? And the answer is, the Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe about God and what duty God requires of man. Those are the two things we learn. We learn God, and we learn how we are to relate to God. God has revealed himself to us so that we can know him, and so that we can walk with him, so that we can walk pleasing to him. And all of life's toughest questions are answered when we turn to God. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of God is the beginning of all knowledge. And to fear God is to worship God. To obey God and to do these things, we must know God. Because knowing God is where all of the joy of life comes from. The prophet Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. See, to know God is the pinnacle of all creation. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That is our chief aim. And to truly know God, we have to turn to his words that are spoken to us in the Holy Bible. And we left off last week with a very groggy Jonah being woken up in the bowels of a ship, a captain crying out to him, The ship was soon to be destroyed by the hand of God as he had hurled a storm upon the sea. And I'm going to begin reading our text in verse 6, actually. We covered it last week because it's going to give us a clue. We're going through verse 16 this morning as to what's going on with Jonah. What gives you a clue is what you do not see. And what you do not see in these verses is prayer. Jonah never calls out to God in prayer. He does not pray until chapter 2. Let me read our text, beginning in verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. 
Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we might not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is, where is your country? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we approach your word with all humility. We pray that the Spirit illuminates your text to our hearts, that it guides our life and shapes our thinking, draws us ever near to our Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we know that the book of Jonah is ultimately about God. We have covered that already a couple of times. It is a historical series of events that discloses to us God's ultimate sovereignty, his control over every single aspect of his creation. And yet it points to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You get this perfect display of God's holiness, and you see in that that he is both just and merciful at the same time. He is both love But the outpouring of his holy love is God's wrath. He is a God who will never lose a single child of his. And he will pursue us and he will discipline us at times. But he will always achieve his redemptive plan for humankind through Jesus Christ. So we look at Jonah as a historical event. And when we do, we look backwards, right? We look way backwards to remember how God has spoken and how God has acted in his creation. And we actually do that because God has commanded us to do that. In Isaiah 46, he says, remember this and stand firm. Remember what God has done. Remember what God has said and stand firm. The more you remember the God you serve, the less you will be prone to compromise. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. So we look back at the story of Jonah, because there is only one God. So we look there to know him, and we'll cover our text. You have this in your bulletins under four headings. Into the light, the great confession, the wages of sin, and saving grace. Because as our text unfolds this morning, what you see is Jonah moving, really being drugged, out of the darkness and into the light. He had fled the presence of God, we know. 
He had put himself willingly into spiritual darkness. No longer was he surrounded by God's people, right? They couldn't remind him of the goodness of God, the perfection of God, what God had done, and call him back into obedience, pointing to God's mighty works. He had separated himself from the people so that he could try and forget and flee the presence of God. Same thing people do today when they flee the church, when the word of God convicts them. He had physically moved into darkness as well, and you see this in the story. He had gone down into the inner part of the ship. He had closed his eyes. He had fallen asleep. But that wasn't the end of things. It's never the end of things because there is no peace to be found in hiding from God and feeding our sins. Try as we might, and we all try, to keep them secret, to keep them concealed in the dark. There's a worthy phrase that was spoken by Moses as he warned the tribes of Reuben and Gad before he entered the promised land in Numbers 32. He had accepted their promises. He reminded them to keep their vows to the Lord, but he warned this in verse 23. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure your sin will find you out. And that we all live with, right? And many of you will know, I don't know if they still make kids read it in school anymore, the old Edgar Allan Poe story, The Telltale Heart. He had murdered somebody, he had hidden the body under the floorboards of the house, and police come and they try to interview him. They're actually sitting right on top of the body, but his guilty conscience knows what he has done. And he starts hearing the beating of the heart in his head. He hears it so clearly and so loudly that he is convinced that the police hear it. And he finally blurts out his confession. That's the story in a nutshell. Your sin will find you out. And so you wonder how Jonah felt, right? He's in the bowels of the ship. He thought he'd escape. The captain asks him to pray. He doesn't seem to pray. He seems to just follow the captain up into the light of the upper decks of the ship. He's out of the darkness. And I suspect his heart was beating. He's not walking onto a calm ship. He's walking onto a ship about ready to sink in the stormy seas. And the sailors who are fearing for their lives, we read last week, they'd done every single thing that they could imagine. They had lightened the ship of its cargo. They'd prayed to their useless false gods, their idols. And they knew that this storm was different, that it was a result of an angry God sending a storm upon the seas. And so this story picks up now with them casting lots. Because it had to be someone's fault. It needed to be someone's fault. Verse 7 says, They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. It had to be someone's fault, and it could not be their own. Right? Nobody could admit that they were the one at fault. There's so many lessons in Jonah. We could park here all morning, because we can't miss seeing just a little bit of ourselves in the actions of the pagan sailors. Just a little bit, Uh, maybe even of the church. People try to hide their sins. They're tempted to hide their sins. We all are. We're tempted in that regard to flee the presence of Christ in his church. We do that because of what Christ has done. We're reminded of who he is in John 3, and it says this is the judgment, the light. Christ has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. That's the challenge for all of us. Such is the power, the convicting power of the Holy Spirit in the Word of God when we submit ourselves to the light of Christ. It exposes it. It calls us to our knees in repentance. 
But our human nature works against this, right? We're always looking for something external to blame. Some other sinner who is worse than us. Every single person, I don't think I've ever met somebody, uh, even a, a resolute atheist, who won't admit that they aren't perfect. Right? Everybody knows this. Intuitively we know it. We know it deep down inside. We all know that we sin. We all know that we've done wrong. We all know that we've said things wrong. We all know that we've thought things wrong. But we're also all very good at deceiving ourselves a tiny bit with self-righteousness. We might not think of it that way, but we kind of do. Because we think to ourselves that we've done something wrong, but nothing so wrong that it would ever deserve God's wrath on me. Never something so wrong that it would deserve God's discipline. Never something so wrong that it would deserve God's judgment upon his church or upon a nation. No, it must be the fault of somebody else. Those evil, wicked doers. It couldn't be me. And because we often start there, The emotion we feel when things happen in our lives and around us is that many become angry with God. A sin. A sin. They forget that he's perfectly good. He's perfectly just. He's perfectly holy. And we're none of those things. This is the reason why the gospel must be proclaimed to us every day. To believers first, then unbelievers. And it must be proclaimed in all its truth with no compromise. And this is what God had called Jonah to do. Go and proclaim to the Ninevites their pending destruction if they did not repent and turn to God. Because anyone who's dulled to the terrible offense of sin against God will naturally look anywhere else other than the saving person and work of Jesus Christ to get them out of it. They just don't see it. It's only when someone sees the perfection of God, his perfect justice, and understands his wrath that is necessary against all sin, that a person's then going to Surrender his heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, who drank that full cup of wrath for all who will follow him. Now, these pagan men, they couldn't see that. They they weren't convinced that someone on board could help them in that way. They knew that someone had offended God. And so it tells us that they cast lots. Now, if you don't know what those are, you see that all throughout the Old Testament, just Think to yourself, throwing dice is probably the easiest way to think about it. They had little stones or little bones that were different colors. They would, you know, think of what men wore, the the long gown things. I don't know what they're called. But when they sat down, they spread out, so they'd cast lots into the lap of their their, uh, clothes. So they cast those, and depending on what came up, they would uh, try to discern the will of God. And that that worked, because it was impartial then. It wasn't just because I liked you, so I'm going to let you pass, and I'm going to choose this. They cast lots, and... Before we go any further, I should note, you do not need to go to the lot store after church. This is, this is not the way to find out the will of God for you. You turn to his word. We're warned against the practice of divination. That is looking at signs. That's even like saying, hey, if the cloud moves that way, I know God wants me to do this. We are told not to do that. And never since the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost have we seen any example of the church relying on lots, right? This is predated the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They cast lots. There's no such thing as chance. We know there's no such thing as luck. Those are pagan concepts. And Jonah knows he's not going to escape notice. Proverbs 16 tells us, while the lot is cast into the lap, its every decision is from the Lord. His providential hand is on every aspect of life. I doubt that Jonah was sitting there thinking of the verse in Numbers, be sure your sin will find you out, but he knew it. And you can only imagine how he felt as these sailors 
started casting lots because he knew why the storm had been hurled upon the sea. He knew why everyone was just about ready to die. Hebrews 4 says, No creature is hidden from the sight of God, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And Jonah had to have been feeling very naked and very exposed on that deck. He knew his sins. And here he was. He was the only Israelite. He was the only Hebrew among a group of pagans. He was very far away from his people. And he was very far away from God in a spiritual sense. And it was God's will that Jonah be exposed. The text says the lot fell on Jonah. So what do you do if you're Jonah in that moment? There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. These are not your people. You're on a sinking ship with unbelievers, but you know the truth. All eyes are pointed at you. And the questions come fast and furious, and we shouldn't be surprised. These men are about ready to die. And they look at this man, this Hebrew that they do not know, and they say, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? What people are you? Remember, they're pagans. They're polytheistic. They're thinking to themselves, "Uh, we've prayed to our false gods. They've done nothing to help us. You, being from a certain country, must have a different God. What did he do? And Jonah didn't try to hide. At this point, he saw the hand of God at work. Too powerful for him, he instead makes the great confession. Our second point, verse 9. He said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This is not a generic profession. This does not just point to an unknown God, like all paths lead to the same God. Remember when you see Lord in small caps in your Bible, it's translating the Hebrew name of God that he has chosen to reveal to us, Yahweh. That's very relevant to these people. He says, I fear Yahweh, not some unnamed God. It's relevant to them. I might argue it's relevant today as you see more and more and more people trying to profess that whether or not you believe in in a Hindu God or Allah or whatever, that, that God will just understand and accept worship. He will not. He will not. That's the whole Old Testament is about that. So he breaks this profession to these people who believe in many gods. And he is proclaiming faith in the one true living God. The God who has revealed himself as the great I am. Always existing. Perfectly self-sustaining. The God who made the sea and the dry land, he says. And that's just like saying, I looked high and low. right? It's saying he created everything. And Jonah says he fears the Lord. He fears the Lord. It's not like shaking in your boots afraid when you see this term. Not not in most cases in Scripture and certainly not here. What it does is convey the sense of worship, of true worship, of approaching God, knowing who we are and who He is and what He has done to save us, approaching Him with reverence and respect and trust and being awestruck by His glory and His majesty and His power. He is God. There is no other. This is exactly the same way Christians must approach God, but we approach Him through the saving work of Jesus Christ. The door has been opened, but He's still, He's not your grandpa, and He's not your buddy up in the sky. He is the creator of all things, and He's not only revealed Himself as the creator, but as the redeemer, for He saves His people through His Son. So that's our God. But He is a righteous God. He is a holy God. 
He will leave no sin unpunished. Every single sin will be punished. The question that we have to ask ourselves in face is who will pay the price? Will you pay the price for your sin? Or will you trust in the one who's paid it for you? The Lord Jesus Christ. Because God, who is both just and holy, also promises to save and forgive all who turn to Jesus Christ and trust Him and follow Him. The pagans on this boat, they did not know God. But Jonah's profession was very clear that he is the creator, he's the ruler of all things. Now it's somewhat ironic, isn't it, to see Jonah in this current state making such a wonderful testimony? He's in great disobedience. He's not in fellowship with God. But you'll see that God starts to use this. Because we worship the God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Everything, good and evil. He is the Lord God, and he says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deep, Psalm 135. And God is about to show that with his power over this storm. But you also see his superintending providence at work here, because he is going to see to it that his redemptive purposes are going to be accomplished, even in the face of a very stubborn and a very disobedient child like Jonah. Verse 10 tells us the men were exceedingly afraid after this confession. And they said, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. He had opened up to them about this so they knew. And the sailors react in a way that's kind of interesting. It should be interesting to us. Why are they now exceedingly afraid at this testimony? Jonah had simply professed That he feared, he worshipped Yahweh, the one true living God, and they were exceedingly afraid. The Hebrew here is, they feared a great fear. They were truly afraid. Now Jonah had not only told them who God is, the text tells us he told them what he had done. He had been running from this God who he professed to be the creator of all things. He was rebelling against the God of the universe. He's rebelling against the God who rules providentially over land and sea and all of his creation. And who's he professing it to? Don't miss this. These are sailors. They travel to ports all over. They had surely heard at least something of this Hebrew God, Yahweh. What, wasn't this the God who killed all the firstborn in Egypt and then parted the Red Sea to save his people? Was this the God who caused the sun to stand still in the sky so that Joshua could decimate the Amorites? I remember this other story. This was the God, I believe, who leveled the walls of the great city Jericho and allowed his people to go and wipe it out. Was this not the God who had parted the waters of the Jordan River so that his people could enter the promised land and defeat All of the pagans, just like these sailors who hated God. This is a powerful God. He evokes fear in these men who do not know him. They had to have heard some of the stories and they shout, What is this that you have done? What have you brought upon us? They expressed greater fear for the God that they did not know than Jonah expressed for the God that he knew so well. This is actually something that should hit us a little bit. That's kind of what happens to us. We become so familiar with God's grace, which is a good thing. God's love for us, which is a good thing. But sometimes we become so accustomed to that that we lose all reverence 
all respect for the majesty of God, for the beauty of Jesus Christ, for what did they actually do to save you and I? You see this in surveys. You can look to see surveys on this, on what a new convert to Christ does. They are so excited to share the gospel. But what surveys consistently show is that after two years of being a Christian, it becomes extremely rare for a believer to speak of Christ to anyone. Now we wonder sometimes, when we look at the world around us, why does the world have no fear of God? Why are they rebelling like they do? I'm going to suggest to you it is because there is so little fear of God in Christ's church. And we're used to it. There's no way for the world to know the beauty of Christ and the fear of God until it's demonstrated by the people who actually know God, by me and you, by people who can go out and proclaim that message that you can be saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to Him. These sailors were exceedingly afraid because they saw the outworking of God in the life of Jonah. They saw what we don't often get to see, the power of God working in this situation. And when the world sees that in the people of God, they begin to ask questions. They begin to know something about Christ. Jonah had made this bold and true profession of who God is. He confessed his sin, at least to these sailors, but what didn't happen? Did this set things right? No, the storm didn't stop. The storm kept raging away. The risk of death didn't go away for these sailors. And so the fear in this men, in these men, is getting worse and worse. It's escalating in the face of God's righteous anger and his perfect holiness. Because God can't ignore sin. He's perfect. It has to be atoned for. It has to be paid for. God's wrath must be appeased. Hebrews 9 tells us, without the shedding of blood, without the death of a substitute, there is no forgiveness of sins. That takes us to our next heading, the wages of sin. And hopefully you can see this begins to start pointing to the work of Christ. See, if Jonah had made the same profession in calm seas, if they're sitting out there on the deck, basking in the sun, floating around on a glassy sea, do you think it would have caused any fear? Have any impact at all on these men? Hey, just by the way, I worship Yahweh. He created all of this. I think they would have done what so many people do today. That's great for you. Your truth's your truth. My truth's my truth. You worship your God. I'll worship my God. But that's not what happened. But that is kind of what happens today. If you just go up to a person and you think you're preaching them a half gospel and you just say, hey, you know what? Jesus loves you unconditionally. At best, you'll make them feel good. Most likely, you'll just make them feel indifferent. They won't care. I mean, most people generally think, why wouldn't he? I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm pretty good. But you have to tell a person the truth. That indeed, their sins have separated them from a holy God. That they will experience the very fair and eternal punishment of God. His wrath, his fury for all eternity, for every sin every single sin they've ever committed, but God loves them. God does love you. And he loves you enough to send a substitute to stand in your place. He will give his own son for you and he will pour out his wrath on his son. Oh, there will be punishment for your sin, but you need not bear it. You do that message and suddenly people have heard the gospel. That they can understand. So do you see something missing in what Jonah has told these men? 
He professes God's power. He professes his sovereignty. He professes his dominion. All good so far. But he never points these men to salvation. He never points them to God's grace. He never calls them to repent. He doesn't call them to cast their idols overboard. He doesn't call them to turn from sin. He doesn't call them to cry out to a merciful God who will hear. And that was the message he was supposed to give all along to the Ninevites because they were facing the same certain destruction. But Jonah just sits there. He keeps silent with these pagan sailors who are about ready to die because of him. Let me just suggest to you that that is because he's holding on to sin. He's still in active rebellion against God. Our witness for Jesus Christ absolutely drowns in our own hypocrisy when we love our sin more than we love Jesus Christ. It becomes virtually impossible for us to spit out the words that you should repent of sin when we know that we won't repent of ours and we're going to hang on to it and hide it. And we become so extraordinarily weak then in calling people to repentance for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ, which is such a wonderful message and such a gift from God. Instead, we kind of think to ourselves, I'll hang on to it. My sin is different. It's not that bad. Let me go reach that sinner. His or hers are way worse than mine. That's not the way it works. Sin always pays its wages. Sin always pays its wages. You don't actually get to hang on to it or or donate it for free. The only place you can leave your sin for free is at the foot of the cross of Christ as you call out to him for mercy and forgiveness. Because God has spoken. He says what? The wages of sin is death. Now, these poor sailors, they couldn't run down and grab their Bible and look and say, well, what, what does God have to offer? What must I do to be saved? He's not at Pentecost talking to Peter who's preaching where the men cried out, what must we do to be saved? And he says, repent, believe, be baptized. No, they don't have that benefit. They can't look like we can at both the warnings and the promises of Scripture. But they are in the midst of a prophet of God who at this time spoke God's word. So in verses 11 and 12, they say to Jonah, what, what do we do? How can we get the sea to quiet down for us? The sea kept getting more and more tempestuous, stormy, right? And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. The sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. See, Jonah knows, right? Jonah knows the wages of sin is death, just like we did. He knows God well. He's a prophet of God. He knows that God has revealed himself in Exodus 34, right? We know this well. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is our God. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Never. Never. He wouldn't be just. He wouldn't be God. He cannot overlook one single sin Because if he leaves it unpunished, it means he's unjust, it means he's unfair, it means he is no longer God. Jonah knew this. He knew God's holiness. He was a prophet. He was very, very familiar with the fact that to atone for sin, you needed a substitute. He lived at a time where God had instituted the sacrificial system, which points, of course, to the once-for-all sacrifice made for sins by Jesus Christ on the cross in whom we trust and place all of our hope and our faith. But that comes later. What Jonah knew was that once a year, the Hebrews recognized the Day of Atonement. 
And two goats were chosen, and lots were cast, and one lot would choose a goat for the Lord, and it would be sacrificed, but the other lot fell on what we call the scapegoat. A scapegoat. We use that term all the time, and Leviticus 16 says, that goat shall bear all their sins on itself, and you'll send it to a remote area. Aaron the high priest would take it out and let it go. There's no place more remote, right, than the depths of the sea. But it would bear the sins of the people. God's anger. With Jonah's sin and the sailors' sins, it needed to be appeased, and Jonah would essentially become the scapegoat. Cast me overboard. But don't see in this a noble exercise of Jonah. That's actually a bit of a negative message here, because in these lines, you actually see instead the hardened heart of Jonah. He does not pray. Not once do you see him call out to God. You do not see him repent. You do not see him ask for God's mercy. You never see him in his testimony recognizing that God had done nothing but good and that there never was and never would be anything that God would do that would justify his disobedience to God. At the sailor's rebuke to him, what have you done? Right? If somebody says that to us, you, you expect that to wake you up. Uh, to have you go to your knees and say, you know what, that's right, I, I'm, I've broken fellowship. With the Lord Jesus, I need to cry out to him and he will restore it. But that's not what he does. Not at all. What he does instead is tell them to cast him overboard. He recognizes who God is. He recognizes what the penalty for sin is, but he would rather double down in his rebellion and be cast to his own death to the bottom of the sea than to ever see the pagan nation of Nineveh saved. That's where his heart's at. He would rather die than obey God. Now, can Christians do this? Absolutely. Absolutely. Christians can do this to themselves through bitterness and anger and looking around what's happening. It happens all around us. It's the key reason that God created and rules over his church. It's why he calls us to never forsake the gathering of the saints on the Lord's day. Right? Hebrews 10 25. That's a command, and it's a command for our good. And it is why we're brought together and warned about staying apart. Hebrews 3 12 and 13 says, Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Though instead, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, as long as you're alive, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's why we're called together in the church. There's a great danger in running from the presence of God and his gathered people, and Jonah pictures this for us over and over in this first chapter, and he would rather die than do God's will. He'd accept his punishment for his disobedience rather than turn in repentance and trust in the Lord. Why? Why? Well, because to truly place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ means you are going to submit yourself to his word. We've already seen in the first couple of verses, Jonah does not want to do that. Now, he's, he's uh, sort of predates it, but you, he's going to go down below and put in Frank Sinatra, right? I'll do it my way. I'll figure it out. Your way will not lead to heaven. God's going to use Jonah's disobedience, though, in a very positive way. God's plans are never thwarted. The sailors say what must be done to calm the seas, spare their lives. Joseph gives an answer. They have to throw him overboard, and this points to our last point, God's saving grace. Verses 13 through 15. Nevertheless, though, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more stormy against them. 
Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. You know, I think when we get familiar with stories like this, you lose the gravity of what Jonah has actually asked these men to do. They're about ready to die at sea. They're pretty desperate. They'll do anything. But what Jonah effectively said to them was, if you want to live, murder me. You want to live, murder me. It'd be like going to one of you and saying, well, you want to get out of this, this fire, this dreadful situation, then murder him. It is a dreadful thing, right, that these men are being asked to do. They're supposed to throw a man into the sea and watch him drown. And they're being told this will solve all their problems. Now, even pagans had a much higher regard for human life than that. And so they did every single thing that they could do to get back to shore. And listen, trying to get back to shore was not them trying to get back to safety. That's not what they're doing here. The common rule of the day was that in a storm, you went farther out to sea. The closer you get to shore, the more likely you are to get broken to bits on the rocks and drown. They are not trying to get to shore to get to safety. Remember what Jonah had told them. He told them why he was running, why God was pouring out his wrath, and maybe, just maybe, we can avoid casting him in the sea, we can get him back to dry land, and see if he can start fresh with God and get his his self up to Nineveh. We'll all be okay. But nobody stops the hand of God. Nobody stops the hand of God And we cannot reconcile ourselves to God by our own power. That privilege we know. We remember studying this in Colossians, I hope. He reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Only God reconciles. Only God restores. Only God redeems. Jonah can't be restored by the actions of a bunch of pagan men. They aren't going to be able to get him to land, to give him a fresh start. See if maybe he'll obey this time and if he doesn't, Just don't let him back on our ship. Let him flee on somebody else's ship. They're not going to be able to do that. The wages of sin is death. Only God saves. Only God restores and redeems by his grace. So they do listen to the prophet of God, finally. And when they do, they call out almost in the very same words of Psalm 115, which says, God is in the heavens and does all he pleases. They cry out to God for his mercy. And they acknowledge his sovereignty in saying, You, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And Jonah is tossed into the sea, tossed to certain death, and something immediately happens. The sea ceased from its raging. What a wake-up call. God didn't take their lives. His grace and mercy was extended to them by the death of another. And it can be extended to you by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ who will return one day. But don't miss this in these stories. Try to put yourself there. If you haven't been at sea, you've at least been in a windstorm. We live in Iowa, right? Think about the crazy strong winds, the waves that are crashing overboard. These men are so afraid that the waves are so strong, they're going to break their boat to bits. They're bucking up and down in the seas, and they go from that instantly Silence. Silence. Peace. Just floating there. What just happened? You you shouldn't miss this immediate and stark contrast of what has just happened by the power of God. 
We are so quick to overlook these things as we look at these stories, but think through that. Nine centuries later, you'll see almost something exactly the same happen. The eternal Son of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, was on a boat with his 12 disciples. They were at sea, and they cried out, Lord, teacher, do you not care that we are about to die? We are perishing. We're going to die. And Jesus does what? He says, peace. Be still. That's it. They're floating on glass at that time. Mark 4 says the wind ceased and there was a great calm. It's amazing. Listen to the reaction of the disciples and then we'll return to these pagan sailors. They knew Jesus. They'd seen him do miracles and it says they were filled with great fear. When you see the power of God in something like that, you can react in no other way. You immediately know he is God and you are not. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Why then is this, that even the wind and sea obey him? And the answer we know is because he is the God-man. Truly God, truly man. Psalm 95 reminds us that the sea is his, it is God's. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. God rules over every aspect of his creation. Whenever any man is confronted with the awesome power of God, particularly his justice, when men see his justice and his power, The result is worship and awe and reverence. And Jonah 1.16 says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. You remember what we said last week, I hope. There's no, there's no atheists in foxholes, that old saying, right? When people are fearing death, they will promise anything, they will say anything, they will profess great faith in God, but there are also hardly ever any conversions in foxholes. The minute the trials pass, you know, you know this from soldiers' stories, right? They'll call out to God, they'll celebrate in the bar. It's, it just doesn't stick when the danger passes. What about these sailors? What do you see here? Had they seen the grace of God in action? Was it enough for them to turn to him in faith and in trust? Well, think about the order of events. If they had made a great sacrifice, if they had made vows to the living God while in the storm, you'd probably say no, or at least it leaves it to question. But that's not what happened. They're in the clear. They're safe. They've seen God's grace. And it is then, with no danger lurking, that they make a sacrifice, that they turn to God. The text actually emphasizes that for us. We don't always pick up on these things, but in that last verse, the Lord, Yahweh, his name is used twice. And it's meant to emphasize this to us. The idols were dead. Worship now, vows now, promises now are made to the only God who can truly save because they've just seen it in action. And what they had seen points forward to the ultimate meaning of the cross. These men, of course, have no idea what's going to happen to Jonah. We'll see that next week. But they have seen that God's way of salvation requires placing the due penalty of sin on another and trusting him. Hebrews 10 explains that by the will of God, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That means it's finished. There's nothing you can do to add to it. There's nothing you can do to take away from it. You either believe or you do not believe. 
He's there, he's waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. He will return. As for by a single offering, one time, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What a wonderful promise. God had commanded Jonah to preach a message of repentance and faith to the pagans in Nineveh, but Jonah disobeyed. But Jonah, but God, I heard today another pastor said in a sermon I was listening to, thank, thank God for all the buts in the Bible, right? But Jonah, but God. Because but God, by his sovereign grace, by his mercy, the God who says, I will have mercy upon whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion, he saves. And he saves regardless of whether his children obey him or disobey him. But what you do see here is that Jonah didn't do anything to save them. And now his fate hangs in the balance. A commentator wrote this long ago. He said, in Jonah, God pursues one man to the death that he might bless the many, the sailors, the Ninevites. Likewise, God pursued his own son, even to the death that many from every nation under heaven might be saved. He did. And so it is up to us. You believe. If you do believe and you find yourself like Jonah, then you're hardening to the wickedness around you. You need to repent. Who's in control? God is. He's in control and he's called every one of us to do one one thing that is so simple. Go proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ in Him crucified. Point to the promise of God's saving grace that He will save all who turn from sin and trust in Him. That's the simple calling of every single Christian. Because God will save all those He calls. He'll do this whether we're obedient in that or disobedient. Somebody else will do it, of course. But look what happened to Jonah. Because if you're obedient, you share in the blessings of that, the celebration, a new brother or sister in Christ. But if you're disobedient, you'll completely miss the blessing of that. Jonah sank down in the cold, dark waters. These men turned to God. If you're still raging against the storms of life yourself, if you're seeing only the negative, if you're refusing to submit to God, then just pause, step back, see His mercy, see His grace. See his power to get you through. He calls all people, come to me and I will give you rest. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, for he will save. And that's the promise that we rest upon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how awesome is your power. How awesome in that you have revealed yourself, not as a distant God that we cannot know, but a God that we can know. A God who knows us intimately. Lord, it is an amazing thing that we do not just see picture after picture of your wrath. We all deserve that. But instead, we see countless and timeless reminders of your grace, your mercy. We see that most of all, Lord, in your Son. We could never fathom what it took to save us, our Creator, the Eternal Son, coming and living among us and dying, a wicked death at the hands of sinners like us, to save us. 
Father, we pray that you will write that upon our hearts, that that will give us boldness to speak truth, to speak of the beauty of Jesus Christ, call upon those in the world to turn from sin, turn from their rebellion, it is so fruitless, and turn instead to following the Lord Jesus, who promises eternal glory and will carry us through all of our hardships. And Lord, as we do face the storms in this life, we cry out to you for your daily mercies. You will indeed make your presence felt with us through Christ, by the Spirit, that you would draw us close to you. Convict us of our sins, Lord, and draw us to repentance daily and help us love one another and sharpen each other. Lord, we do pray that you would use us, that we would be a light in a dark world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.